Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Kylie Camps, and welcome to the podcast. This space is dedicated entirely to making a difference in the lives of women. I believe we all have a right and a responsibility to truly live our best lives. It all begins with curiosity, changing our thinking, and cultivating more self love. Through thoughtful conversations and shared experiences, I really hope that you can take something away from this podcast. I'm a business owner, a speaker, a sleep consultant, and mum of twin boys. I've also recently completed some training in the cognitive behavioral therapy space, and I'm super, super passionate about the ability that we all have to really improve our days. And ultimately, when we take ownership of improving our days, we're really improving our whole life. So let's get stuck into today's episode. Welcome to today's podcast. I have to say I was super, super, super excited to have the chance to speak with a woman that I have really admired from afar through her content. And this is a woman that is not afraid to speak up, speak out and change paradigms. Now, the woman that I'm referring to is none other than Dr. Wednesday Martin, She is a feminist, cultural critic, and New York Times best-selling author of seven books. She believes science and social science are for everyone, and she has long blended them together with her storytelling to give readers those aha moments that can really, really connect, change behaviors, change desires, and also just provide insight into who we are as women. Wednesday has spent the last five years focused on the newest science and thinking all about female sexuality, and she discusses this in her book, Untrue. We talk a lot about her book, Untrue, in this episode, and I'm sure that by the end of our chat, you're going to want to grab your own copy. I think it's likely you'll also want to hear more from Dr. Wednesday as well. She hosts a podcast with Whitney Miller called True Sex and Wild Love. And I first came across Wednesday via an episode of the Aubrey Marcus podcast. And I just remember finding myself nodding along and thinking, wow, this is so fascinating. And her passion for her findings and her passion for her work is just so evident. And she was as much a pleasure to speak to as I thought that she would be. And I really hope you enjoy this episode. We talk about so many different things, including desire, monogamy, motherhood, feminism, so many interesting things that I think you're going to really, really enjoy this episode. As always, it would mean the absolute world to me if you take a screenshot right now, pop it on your Instagram stories, tag me at Kylie Camps, and you can also tag Dr. Wednesday Martin as well. I believe that her Instagram handle is 
at Wednesday Martin PhD. And don't forget to check out her podcast as well with Whitney Miller, True Sex and Wild Love. Let's get into the episode. Dr. Wednesday Martin, thank you so much for joining me today. I've been so looking forward to speaking with you. Thank you, Kylie. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for thinking of me and for introducing me to your audience. Of course. Now, before we dive in, I would love to know just how are you coping with the pandemic? Ooh, very badly, I have to say. I considered today tweeting, just so everybody knows, I'm falling down and I will continue to fall down. (laughs) Um, I think that initially, uh, you know, I was looking back on my social media. I think I was looking back on my Instagram account and I had to laugh and also kind of want to kick myself in the ass because I posted um, something about, you know, how's everybody doing? This was quite early on in our stay at home self-quarantine that my family and I started doing, um, I believe, March 9th or thereabouts. And I had posted something like, oh, you know, I hope everyone's doing well. Let me tell you what we're doing. I was off track, but now I'm back on track. And I look back at that and I think, how ridiculous. You're not on track at all. You can't concentrate. You're having a hard time. You're having bad days. You're waking up in the middle of the night feeling really sad or scared. You're not on track at all. And recently, I have just relaxed into accepting that. And I'm, I'm really feeling for people who their coping strategy is not to be very productive. There are some people, you know, I'm a New Yorker, Kylie, and um, New Yorkers, as you know, are just maniacal doers, right? And we never stop and we never slow down and we hustle, hustle, hustle. So a lot of people that I know are coping with this pandemic and their sadness and grief and fear by barreling ahead professionally and acting like nothing has changed. They're just doing all the same things and doing them virtually. And that to them, I used to think that that was virtue. And then I realized that's a strategy of self-soothing. And Absolutely, it's over-functioning, isn't it? Yes, and the fact that that that's how they self-soothe does not obligate me to meet them in the, you know, in the middle. And, and to share that same strategy, my strategy, if, if you can call it that, has been, you know, to grieve when I have to grieve and to accept that I'm unproductive sometimes, um, to try to do helpful, altruistic things when I can. But sometimes I can't even summon the motivation to do that. Um, and I think, you know, it's so interesting that in Australia, um, you have a prime minister who's you know you have a a political situation that's kind of similar to ours in that there's a lot of disenchantment with your political leader Mm. um but you have been able to flatten the curve so there's something for australians to feel really good about and one of the things that i really grieve about in the united states is how ununited we are about this and how um surviving the pandemic has become a partisan issue in my country so and um, that is the long answer to your question about how I'm doing. Not well. 
Oh, well. well, I think well, there's a lot of power in, in sharing that because you certainly will not be alone. And I think it just, it can change from moment to moment. And I was laughing when you said, you know, you looked back on your Instagram post and you want to go back and kick yourself. But that was true yes. in that moment. And I think it that was true in that moment. And, yeah. you know, you're right. And now, which isn't to say that I don't have good days, like everybody listening, some of us have good days and some of us have bad days. Um, do you know what the difference for me I notice between a good day and a bad day is? What is it? It it tracks quite precisely to whether I had an orgasm the night before. Well, that is all the more reason mm-hmm. then to make sure you're having an orgasm. <laughs> that's so a, that's a great coping technique. That's much better than overfunctioning. <laughs> You know, so to segue from the global pandemic and then how one is your work and to segue straight into sex, um, that's that's an easy segue for me. Um, But I have noticed that um, if I don't have an orgasm, I am in a much uh, less resilient state the next day. So um, I would encourage people who like me are having hard times if an orgasm is within your reach whether with a partner or by yourself we have so much data about how it can help improve mood it can help enhance immunity it improves sleep quality so for those of you who are having some bad days and i think it's all of us don't forget to have an orgasm don't discount an orgasm. Absolutely. The and now, power. <laughs> yeah, the, the power of the orgasm. And to give our community a bit more scope on who you are and what it is that you do, could you share with us, where did your passion for this line of work come from? Like, where did this all begin sure. for you? I would describe myself as a feminist cultural critic. And for about 30 years now, I have been blending science and social science and storytelling to help women, mostly women, understand themselves better. So my jam is to look at women's social and sexual behavior and then to use science and say mostly to women, you see, You're more normal than you think you are. Let me help you understand why you desire what you desire, um, why you want what you want, why you think what you think, why you feel what you feel. The answers are here in science and social science. And I try to make the science and social science not just accessible, but very relevant so that women have the aha moment, right? So I did it in Primates of Park Avenue. I used science and social science to explain motherhood to women. Um, And then in Untrue, my most recent book, I delved into the more recent science and social science about female sexuality. um, And that is what I focused on, particularly the way in which for females of many species and women in many cultures, monogamy is very challenging. So that's where I've been for the last five years, just fully immersing myself in that data. And I interview people, you know, regular women, I interview experts, I review hundreds of studies, and then I try to make it into this science that tastes like candy. (laughs) And And you do, you do it so well. It's evidence-based, but it's digestible. You know, I, I really feel like science can change our lives and free us 
a lot from feelings of stigma and shame. And women feel so much shame about their sexuality. I mean, I, I interviewed many, many women for this book. And I would say that only perhaps two or three of them and only a few of the hundreds of women I've spoken to about their sexuality since, only a very, perhaps a handful of them have talked about their sexuality as if it's normal and healthy. Almost all women out of the gate, when they talk about their sexuality, they presume that something's wrong with them. They presume that they're broken. They want sex too much. They want it too little. Um, they struggle with monogamy. They must be more like a guy. Um, you know, they don't want to have sex. There must be something wrong with them physically or emotionally. They must not like their partner. So women often start from this point of pathology about their sexuality. It is one thing to tell a woman, no, you're normal. And because that's the, you know, right or correct or proper thing to say to her. It's another thing to show a woman scientific study after scientific study after scientific study um, that demonstrates, for example, that women start to struggle with monogamy in long-term partnerships sooner than men do, um, or to show women that the reason they shut off sexually is not what they think it is. So science can be really powerful in that way, because like I said, it's one thing to try to comfort someone with your words, but when you comfort someone with data, then, then you're cooking with oil or whatever Absolutely. the expression is. Sorry, like I said, having no, you. You do it so you do it so well. That's one of the things that I really connect with when asked, I am absorbing your oh, work. I appreciate that because you know you always want um, women. My readers are mostly women, but I welcome men to my work and people who identify as neither. You just want the people reading your work to understand that science is for them and that you know this science and social science is not biased. Um, this, the social science and science that's sort of correcting bias in the science. It's not just telling people what they want to hear. When women hear a more accurate portrayal of themselves in the science and social science, it's, that's, that's honest. And that, you know, there's nothing um, more powerful than putting those tools in people's hands. So I'm happy to do it. You asked how I got started doing this. And um, when I was a kid, I had a mother who was very interested in cultural anthropology and biology. And she was a feminist. And I grew up in a really small town in the Midwest in Michigan. And in a very conservative community. And my mom was considered a little bit out there. She breastfed her kids in public, you know, in the late 60s and early 70s when people in conservative American communities weren't doing that. She, you know, vocally identified as a feminist. She had, you know, she went to consciousness raising groups, which was a thing that second wave feminists did. and. She was active in an, organiza an organization called the Women's Political Caucus. And so she was an activist and a feminist. And she also 
was, like I said, very interested in social science and science, particularly biology. Um, so all this stuff was around the house. There, you know, National Geographic and what a gift! Uh, yeah, and books by Margaret Mead, and you know, articles about Jane Goodall, and you know, I often joke that some girls had posters of um, cute boys in their room, but if I had had posters, they would have been probably Jane Goodall, Margaret Mead, and Gloria Steinem. <laughs> that, that was who I was. My mom helped me see that those women were quite heroic and that, you know, science and social science and primatology and anthropology, those to me seemed like things women did. You know, um, the women in my in my town where I was growing up had these very conventional lives in a lot of ways. My mother was a little bit less conventional, but she presented to me as within the realm of possibility, the simple fact that here are these women changing science and 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 it's completely interesting. And, you know, of course, one of the things that Margaret Mead is very famous for studying is sexuality. And when I was young, her groundbreaking book called Coming of Age in Samoa, uh, which caused a scandal when it was initially published in the 1920s, was republished uh, in the 70s and created another scandal all over again. People were scandalized all over again uh, <laughs> when, Margaret, yeah, when Margaret Mead assert, asserted, you know, the, the way we raise girls here um, to be sexually uh, demure and coy is not culturally universal. There are cultures where girls enjoy their sexuality and are more assertive. And our way is not the only way and it's not the right way. So that I remember just the storm of controversy about that when I was young, that was still resonating. And my mother also had a library of books by, for example, Cher Height and Erica Jong and um, Nancy Friday, <laughs> who I've written, um, I've written for the Daily Beast about Nancy Friday, who was a big influence on me as a kid. So sex was all around, feminism was all around, and science and social science were all around. And I just kind of grew up in that brew. And then the other part of the equation was that I lived in a really conservative sort of fundamentalist Christian town, you know, and um, I, I was really aware of those contradictions. Wow. And I wanted, to, I, so I wanted to write about how I, uh, you know, very early on, I was seeing how ideology constrained female freedom and, and how ideologies of shame uh, were really damaging. I mean, I grew up an atheist, my parents were atheists. And I grew up in this really conservative Christian town. Um, it has more churches per square mile than any other place in the United States, and I believe the world. Grand Rapids, Michigan. It's a very um, socially conservative form of um, Christianity. There is it's called the Christian Reformed Church. Sometimes it's called the Dutch Reformed Church, and they're like I said, extremely socially conservative, very retrograde uh, notions about who men are and who women are. So I grew up really afraid that I was going to go to hell. 
I mean, I was really sure that I was bad. And I was petrified of that because every friend I had was very religious. We were the only non-religious people um, that I knew for quite a bit of my time growing up, especially as a young kid. So I think somehow I needed to turn to science and social science to prove to myself that I wasn't bad um, and that I was that I was normal and you know that I wasn't I wasn't headed for hell (laughs) for hell and I guess in a in a lot of ways you've been going against the grain and speaking your truth then from such an early age because it's so unique that one you know your mum was able to give you those gifts of just being exposed to that world from such a young age particularly given the situation that you lived in the town that you lived in it makes it even more rare I guess that you were exposed to that but it's also kind of a bit of training for you for your whole life because even now with some of the concepts that you deliver they can be really I guess abrasive for some people still now in 2020. Yes I mean one of the things that I learned now and I don't want to idealize my relationship with my mother because it's far from ideal um we know ourselves kylie being mothers that you know mothers fail and we're gonna fail our children on certain measures so you know i don't want to sugarcoat my relationship with my mother but i do want to honor um that that she gave me those tools you know she presented those discourses to me at an early age so that i had an alternative um idea about what I what I could do and what I could be and I do I did notice you know from having a mom who was a feminist and like I said she was breastfeeding in public at a time when nobody did that and you know agitating for equal pay for women um I did notice very early on that when you try to change the order of things and the hierarchy when you question it there's tremendous blowback. And um, I saw that, you know, I, I, I was a, an eyewitness to second wave feminism. And I saw how people hated Gloria Steinem and they, you know, they hated Florence Kennedy, just the, the rage. And I thought, wow, these women are really onto something. They're really pissing people off. <laughs> uh, and I was so interested in that I where did they get the nerve to piss powerful men off I wanted to be like that I was all in I love that and your passion on this topic is just so apparent and you know we've touched on um, passion and a little bit on desire already one thing that I wanted to chat with you about today is that I know a lot of women struggle with that gradual decrease of desire that often does come within long-term monogamous relationships Mm -hmm. so to begin with I guess why does desire suffer when we are in those familiar relationships the 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 short answer is because women were not designed for monogamy any more than men were and probably less so that's the short answer let me give you the longer answer um, one of the lessons of anthropology and, and one of the things we really need to understand about human sexuality, first of all, you know, our evolutionary script is not that there is a cave woman and a cave man 
in a monogamous dyad and he brought back meat to her and the baby. Our evolutionary prehistory has nothing to do with the kind of um, exclusive dyadic sexuality that works for a lot of people right now. Um, our evolutionary prehistory we now know um, from a lot of evidence that I get into in my book on true, much more likely resembled people living in sort of rangy groups and having sex with more than one partner in order to solidify social bonds and then raising children uh, collectively and cooperatively so that they were more likely uh, to survive to an age where they could reproduce themselves. So that's one really important piece, weirdly, for people to understand when we're talking about contemporary female sexuality. Just tuck that into the back of your mind that we evolved as cooperative breeders. Now that means that monogamy is relatively new. And I'm untrue, I talk about how the expectation uh, that women are the property of men and that they should be more coy and sexually demure uh, and that they're more naturally monogamous and they ought to be is a very recent view for an anthropologist. To us, it's like that happened yesterday. That happened between 10 and 12,000 years ago that we decided um, that people should live in monogamous diets and that it was easier for women than it is for men. So I just gave you some backstory. Let me say a couple other things. The first thing is we didn't evolve to be any one particular way. Humans are really flexible, sexual and social strategists. This is a really cool thing about Homo sapiens. You know, earlier hominins died out because they didn't have these cool, flexible strategies we had. So we could live in a dyad uh, if we had to do that, uh, but we could live in these groups of people, right? And we could, that could be our sexual and social strategy too. So we are designed for flexibility. And the only consistent thing about human sexuality is its quirkiness and inconsistency. We can't say that we should be any one way. That's my sort of background that I want people to understand that before I say the following things that we've learned from the sex research and from primatology. We know now for a fact there are data, um, a mountain of studies. A mountain is only a slight exaggeration. There, there are very convincing, well-designed studies that show us that in the aggregate, it is normal for women to begin to struggle to experience low desire between years one and four of a long-term committed relationship. Now, for many years, we had this belief that men had stronger libidos than women did. And we said, yes, of course, women stop wanting sex. Um, they're less sexual than men. And for years, everybody just left that alone. It was like a log in the, in the forest, just like a gigantic log that nobody disturbed and everybody presumed. Just yeah, the way there it is. is. Yeah. That's just the way it is. So lo and behold, women during the great second wave of feminism, begin to enter new fields. They enter field biology, primatology, they enter medicine, they enter sex research, and they all start converging on a single point, which is women and 
females of most species are not who we presume them to be sexually. Suddenly, all these data start to emerge. We learn that non-human primate species who are our closest relatives, like bonobos and chimps, we learn that the females are remarkably promiscuous. We learn that there are no social primate non-human species that are monogamous. We learn that when we measure it the right way, a woman's libido is every bit as strong as a man's libido. We learn in laboratory tests that women and men report equal levels of arousal when they're looking at erotic material. Suddenly, a new hypothesis about why women lose interest in sex starts to emerge. And what we start to see is that this drop in desire, if we ask the women, as female researchers start started to do, so you've had this drop of desire in years one to four, uh, your husband or long-term male partner wants to continue having sex, how do you feel about that? I feel distressed, I feel beside myself, I'm broken, remember that, there's something wrong with me, there's something wrong with my marriage, um, there's something wrong with my libido, help me. Okay, we had the data that male and female libidos were pretty much the same if we measured them the right way, if we looked at responsive and triggered desire instead of just spontaneous desire. Hmm, what could it be? A female researcher thought to ask these women, okay, you say that your libido is gone. You don't want to have sex with your husband or your long-term partner. What if you could have sex with a new person? Oh, are you kidding? Women said, are you kidding? I'm all in. My libido just came flaming back. We know, and I get into it in Untrue in a lot more detail, and I lay out the argument um, very carefully. We know that women evolved, just as men did, to need variety and novelty and adventure in their sex lives. But we sold women this bill of goods that they were demure and coy and that they didn't like sex as much. So... When the woman starts shutting down as a normal human female will in years one to four of her long-term live-in relationship, she immediately goes to the narrative that she doesn't like sex anymore. Instead of going to the reality, oh, wait, I start to need variety and novelty and adventure more quickly and more intensely than my male partner does. Nobody's told women that. So we just think yeah, I lost interest because I lost interest in sex. No, you didn't. You lost interest in having sex with the same person over and over and over again without making it more interesting. So this is the great sexual malaise that women are unnecessarily suffering from. If somebody would tell them, no, you haven't turned off sex, you've just turned off the same sex repeatedly without variety and novelty and adventure. Think how that could change marriages. Think Such how that could unlock. change. Right, right. Because yeah. suddenly we would see that women are sexually and socially not who we've been told. And one of the things that I like to tell people is that in these longitudinal studies, which are in Untrue and on my 
Twitter and in other places I've written, I wrote an article for the Atlantic called Women, the Board Sex, in which I get into all the data, which I won't get into here, about how women need variety and novelty and adventure before men do, but nobody tells them that. So they're like, oh, I guess I hate sex. Um, there is one factor that is protective and that can keep women in the aggregate interested in sex with their long-term partner. Do you know what it is? I would love you to unpack it for us. It's that they don't live together. Okay. Yeah. This really uh, interesting longitudinal study um, done in Germany found this, and so did uh, a couple of other longitudinal studies, um, one in the UK and one in the United States. They found that if men and women didn't live together, women retained their interest in having sex with their long-term partners. So I like to say to people, um, to heterosexuals, do you want to keep your girlfriend or your wife interested in you? Just move out. <laughs> yeah. And, and you course, know what? <laughs> go ahead. It's, I was just going to say, it's funny that you mentioned that because I was just having this conversation with a friend talking about how I think that there is becoming more momentum for that kind of dynamic, like I know that Gwyneth Paltrow shared, you know, when her and her um, husband Brad Falchuk got married, they still weren't living together full time. And there's something in that. There's something nice in that idea of having like a bit of your own space yeah. and also keeping a little bit of privacy. Like I've always been one, even in my marriage. Like, you know, we didn't go to the bathroom in front of one another. There was like, just keep Do a not. bit of mystery. Have a you bit know, of, you know, some boundaries in place. You're so, so smart. I say to people, of course, I'm joking. Like, if you want to keep your wife or girlfriend interested, you move out. That's not practical. But look, can you have separate bathrooms? If you are lucky enough that that's a possibility, definitely do that. Can you have separate bedrooms? Would that keep it interesting and sexy that you could pretend like that your bedroom's a hotel room and he's like... The, um, I don't know, <laughs> room stuff. Well, it, it, just, it just adds that little bit of, you know, um, mystery. It adds novelty and variety. Novelty, yeah. you, you can't turn your partner into a new person, but you can create new situations that make you think that you're in, that you're getting novelty and variety and adventure with the same person. That can really work for people. I want to say one thing. If, if you're a woman who loves monogamy and is very turned on by your partner for a really really long time you're normal if you're a woman who is not you are normal but in the aggregate because social science and science we talk about people in the aggregate right one person we call an n of one and your experience is very important to you but social science doesn't really care about it until we say oh yeah this is a pattern with ten thousand people so what I want people to understand is that it's in the aggregate that women feel this ennui set in between years one to four. It won't happen for every woman, but for those women it happens for, boy, honey, you are really normal and there are fixes available. So separate bathrooms, separate bedrooms, maybe um, time apart on a vacation. Um, some people don't like that and they don't want it. Um, some people respond to a lot of women I interviewed said they kept it spicy by going, say, to a bar and showing up separately on date night. Like, don't get ready for date night with your spouse or your person. 
show up separately, see that person across the room, see them as like maybe a stranger, maybe do some role playing about your person being a stranger. Well, and then Esther, I was just going to add to that as well that I know Esther Perel, who I really enjoy her work mm-hmm. as well. She often yeah. speaks about how important it is with desire to see your partner through the eyes of others. So even just like you said, arriving to the bar separately and noticing your partner in an environment where other people see them differently can just make you see them through a whole different lens. Yeah, and that's very sexy to people. So Esther is there crossing over the work of two researchers I really admire. One of them um, is uh, named Michelle Shankman, and she's at the Ackerman Institute in New York City. And she wrote a lot about how when she came to the United States as a couples therapist from Brazil, she couldn't believe the way Americans expected their spouses to be all things to each other. Um, Mm. She lived in a place where there was more of an understanding that, um, you know, our spouse can't provide our sexual excitement, our social support, our emotional support, our financial support, our, our child, they can't be our child rearing partners and also be, uh, these super exciting to have sex partners indefinitely. So Michelle Shankman, who I write about in Untrue, um, definitely contributed that idea that Esther expressed uh, so beautifully. And then there's this other piece that Marta Miana, another one of my favorite sex researchers from the University of Nevada in Las Vegas, wrote about these women's lives. She, she spoke to about 19 women, she did a qualitative study. She spoke to them, they were so distressed about their libidos and not desiring their partners whom they loved a lot and they wanted it to work. And they said, I just don't desire him or her in the same way there were a couple of lesbians in the study. Most of the women were heterosexual in in this particular study. And what Marcia Mayana discovered is that domesticity being really enmeshed with your partner, you know, being able to finish each other's sentences, having baby talk, <laughs> all the other things that are about sort of being enmeshed with your partner, being super close over familiarity, mm-hmm. um, moving in together, putting a ring on it, institutionalizing the relationship, uh, close quarters of domesticity, seeing your guy's dental floss on the bathroom counter and just she found that all these things you know domestication institutionalization of the relationship and over familiarity all these things dampened the woman's libido in ways they didn't dampen the man's libido right so fascinating we've never said that about women until these social scientists who happen to be women uh, figured it out. So I always say to women who who feel like, gosh, I've gone off sex. And I always say, hold on. What if you could have sex with somebody new or make your partner feel really new to you? And then they're very interested in sex again. And that tracks uh, with all the data. And in Untrue, it wouldn't be appropriate here to go into all the evolutionary reasons that women uh, did evolve to really love variety and novelty, but I do get into that in Untrue. And, you know, I just don't want women to be having service sex, right? I don't want them to feel like it's their duty to have sex with their partner. 
and to be doing it and thinking this is so depressing. I'm like my mother. Everybody always said women don't like sex. That's who I've become. No, 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 no. Don't have service sex. Figure out a solution. And we talked about some of the potential solutions, you know, to make things seem novel and to give women variety and adventure, um, which is something nobody has taught them that they need, but they do. Uh, so we talked about a few of those things that you could do within the couple. And then there are some people who are going to want or need solutions that might seem more radical. And, you know, my belief is it's time to stop judging that. So there are some people for whom the solution will be going to a sex party, watching but not doing, um, watching porn together as a couple. Um, you know, some people uh, might turn to consensual non-monogamy. They might have an agreement that they can see other partners, but only together. Um, or they might have an agreement that they can see partners, but only separately. Um, so, you know, to me, there are so many different ways. Yeah, like we, so many, yeah, so many different ways. And you know, we have to stop stigmatizing um, these different solutions because the science shows us that we need to be creative if we want people to stay together in the long term and be satisfied. We said that for many years, but we thought we were talking about needing, you know, meeting the needs and desires of men. But it turns out that it's women uh, who need these fixes sooner. And I want them to stop feeling ashamed about it if they're those normal human women who need those things. And they Absolutely. have options. I mean, do you know anybody who before she got married had a conversation with her um I'm talking about heterosexuals now because you know forget I it. I can lesbians. already preempt what you're going to say. I'm going to say yeah. no. I don't know anyone that has ha sat down with their partners before they've entered, you know, a marriage or a long-term monogamous relationship and said, "Hey, it's likely that I'm going to experience X, Y, Z. What are some coping strategies that we might introduce? Or how do you feel about this? Or have you thought of that? Like, and how do you feel about having monogamy. those conversations?" Yeah, How do you feel about so monogamy? And you don't, you know, a lot of people don't understand that it doesn't mean that you don't love your partner anymore. A lot of people don't understand that what works for 10 years might stop working after 10 years. And it doesn't mean you have to end your marriage or your partnership. So people need to see these options. You know, you were talking to me, you asked me about, I was talking to you about my childhood. And one of the things I neglected to say is that in the super conservative place where I grew up, Grand Rapids, Michigan, which was so religious, there were lots and lots of gay men. And I grew up around gay men and some of my best friends uh, when I was a teenager, um, a couple of my close friends were gay. And I always went out to, when I went out to clubs and when I got older, um, I went to this gay club. And gay men, in a way, were my um, guides. They taught me that sex well, they, could be really exuberant and fun. And I was just going to say, generally, yeah. they're also a lot more open in conversation. I mean, I know myself, I became a flight attendant when I was around the age of 20. And I formed really strong friendships with quite a few gay men. And one in particular was so... Um, so profoundly impacted me because it was the first time as, you know, someone who'd just come out of their teens, I was going to gay bars and I was exposed to so, you know, a, a far more casual approach to yes. sex than what I had been led to believe was right. 
far more casual. First of all, how awesome that you were a flight attendant. I did not know that about you. <laughs> and wow, I would love to study the sex lives of pilots and flight attendants because there's some wildness there. Um, <laughs> well, I can tell you from just my own experience, I was a regional flight attendant and there was not, I mean, sure, there was some sexual tension between certain flight attendants and pilots, but for the most part, it was pretty tame where was I was. Was it quite chaste and tame? Okay, I might have, I might have to dig into this topic. This is going to be interesting. <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting that you had your, you had your eyes open about different varied sexual and social strategies because you hung out with a gay man and I had the same exact experience. Um, you know, so gay men showed me that sex should be fun. Um, their model was that it didn't have to be a lot. I mean, I have a lot of gay male friends now who are very monogamous, but you know, in general, it's safe to say, I was just talking to Dan Savage recently and I, I said that I felt like um, gay men gentrified non-monogamy for straight people, right? Like Gwyneth Paltrow can only talk about non-monogamy um, because gay men were doing it and taking a lot of shit for it um, over the last decades. And so, you know, I think that we owe a real, um, a real debt to gay men for putting the idea of consensual non-monogamy out there. And, you know, it's taken decades for straight people to get where gay men have been for a long time. And I think they have really important lessons to impart to us about how we might comport ourselves and be more compassionate to ourselves uh, about our, our need really um, for sexual fun and newness and variety and novelty and adventure. So I, I just love um, that that was part of your having your eyes opened sexually as well. Yeah, I definitely think it's becoming far more common to have those conversations. And I know that there will be people listening who, you know, feel quite a lot of resistance surrounding the concept of consensual non-monogamy. And that's okay. Like it doesn't have to be for everyone. Of course. Absolutely. I also just love that nowadays in 2020, we do have so many more resources, so many more voices and so much more awareness that it is okay to explore different ways of being if how you're being isn't really working for you. And that's all it's about. You have options. I just hope all the work that I've done on female sexuality, all the talks I've given, all the Instagram posts, the articles I've written, if it inspires one woman to feel entitled to have a conversation about whether monogamy is something that she wants or not right now and for the foreseeable future, <laughs> then I'll feel like my work is done. <laughs> yeah. Because it, it, you know, and, and feel like it's been worth it because women haven't been given that option to be autonomous. What does autonomy mean even? if you don't have the autonomy to choose what you want to do with your body and your sexuality. And for some women, it's going to be monogamy, God bless. And, and for some women, it'll change at different life stages. You know, when I had toddlers, I would not even have thought um, of, you know, 
these issues. They, they don't come up at certain life stages. You're exhausted, you're overwhelmed, you're getting enough tactile input and um, love and thrill from having babies or, you know, like I said, or you're just too tired at a certain point. But so things change at different life stages. And, you know, just because you got married, presuming that you're going to be monogamous, doesn't mean that it has to stay that way. You could change it. Then you could change it back. But it's all about having those options. Definitely. And we've spoken a little bit or spoken a lot about desire as well. And one thing that I just wanted to ask you on the topic of desire is it's obviously important that as women, we feel desire, you know, desire towards wanting to have sex, desire for the person we're having sex with. But how important is it also for the flip side? How important is it to be desired or to feel desired? Oh, yeah, this is a really cool topic um, in the sex research. And Marta Miana, remember I mentioned the sex researcher I love before, uh, who, who told us that domestication and institutionalization of the relationship and, and over-familiarity dampen the female libido. She I think that's a, the biggest takeaway from this episode, Wednesday. Like if yeah. women listening can just even... Write that down in their phone. Just take a moment to really, really think about that. It's that powerful. That's, and, and we've been taught that those are all the things that women want, and we don't, um, sexually speaking. So Marta Miana had another big insight, another breakthrough insight, aside from that one. And this was that she had this feeling uh, when, and, you know, sometimes good science and good social science can start with a hunch, Right. And uh, you have to turn it into uh, a theory, uh, a hypothesis, and then you have to turn it into a theory. Um, But so she had this notion that women were kind of getting off on themselves having sex more than men were. So she started to ask men and women. um, She did a study and the study is hilarious. It's called It's Not You, It's Me. So she asked a group, a group of men, and I get into the details of this study. I'm sat here asked, smiling because I know where this is going. <laughs> okay, she asked a group of men, hey, if you were having sex with your partner and there was a large mirror there. Mirror? <laughs> yeah. What percentage of time would you be looking at your partner in the mirror? And what percentage of time would you be looking at yourself? And the guy said, uh, yeah, looking at my partner almost the whole entire time. So she said to these women, uh, in the study. Okay, so same deal. How, what are you looking at? And the women say, oh, I'm looking at myself like a lot, a lot. I'm really enjoying watching myself having sex. I'm more interested in that really than I am in, interested in looking at my partner. So Marta Miana, being a good uh, social scientist, couldn't let it rest there. She, you know, you'll often find so dedicated. Yeah, that they're tenacious. They just always want to know more. So she's, huh? This is so interesting. Let me let me raise the stakes here a little more. So she asks the men, if you could have sex with yourself, would you? The men almost, you know, almost all of them looked at her as if they didn't even know what she was talking about. Whereas the women, when she said, would you have sex with yourself? A lot of them said, oh, definitely. And when I interviewed her, she said, they said it as if they already had had sex with themselves and it was great. (laughs) So 
which I think yeah. is so interesting because even, you know, like just I feel like anecdotally we're always told, you know, men masturbate, teenage boys masturbate, but as women, no, we don't do that. As teenage girls, we don't do that. So it's so fascinating, I think, to, to sort of really think about the findings of that it conversation. Is. It is really interesting. And, you know, there's, there is so much new and relatively new science that will just upend all our notions about who we think women are sexually. But to this thing about the mirror, you know, and let's get back to our point about needing variety and novelty and adventure. There is something about female sexuality that, and we can't judge it. And I've heard people try to judge it. They say, oh, it's just because women are being used to object, being objectified and they like to objectify themselves. And that's really you know, that they like to look at themselves in the mirror, you know, getting fucked, that's really retrograde and bad news. And, you know, I'm with Marta Miana on this. She says, ideology and sex make terrible bedfellows. Don't judge that these women have said that this turns them on tremendously. Just work with it. You have this deep drop in female desire in years one to four of a committed, exclusive, long-term partnership. Put a mirror in there right? Yes. Well, I guess there comes a point when it's like you can overanalyze, overanalyze, or you can just go, hey, try this and see if this helps. That's right. And so a mirror, we know from the data what a lot of women have known intuitively about themselves. And a lot of people have already uh, added this to their bedrooms. But if you haven't, give it a try. It really works for women and there's science backing it up. And, you know, just to address really for one second here, Kylie, because I know we have to end soon your point about masturbation. You know, it's so interesting because now we have the data that show us that um, when measured correctly, male and female homo sapiens libidos are very comparable. Uh, We know that they report equal levels of arousal. Um, when looking at erotic materials, uh, we uh, we also, by the way, there goes that nonsense idea that women are somehow less visual than men. Excuse me, we love watching ourselves in the mirror and we uh, like, you know, we respond to erotic visual content as much as men do in laboratory settings. So forget about that whole thing that men are more visual. Um, so we know that the bleedos are very matched. Uh, we know that women are as visual as men sexually. The other thing uh, that we know because of um, most recently the work of a wonderful Australian urologist uh, named Helen O'Connell is that women have as much erectile tissue as men do. The internal structure of the human female clitoris is the same size as a penis. And so pound per pound, um, ounce per ounce, women have as much erectile tissue as men do. Of course, it's arranged very differently, um, but women wake up uh, with erections in the morning. Um, We get hard-ons when we're sexually excited. So that's how we know that the fact that we're told uh, that girls naturally masturbate less or women naturally masturbate less, that's how we, see a red flag go up there and we know that this is a very suspect assertion unless we factor in stigma and constraint and ideology because with the same equipment with we have the same number of erections every night that men get right um it's called um 
nocturnal clitoral tumescence. We get hard-ons all night long, the same number of hard-ons that men get as they sleep. So when I hear people say that it's normal uh, that women masturbate less, um, given what I know about the science, I know there's a lot of ideology at play there mm. and that we should question that. Absolutely. So that's how science is relevant. Put a, mirror, put a mirror in your room. Don't be afraid to change your arrangement or to ask for adjustments. Um, and don't believe the hype that women are naturally next, less sexual than men. We're not. Absolutely. And you mentioned the word stigma just then as well. And I wanted to touch on the stigma of being slutty that women face. How much do you think that the whole slut shaming stigma impacts a woman's choice to have multiple partners? We know from data, there are data that show us the reality of slut shaming and internalized slut shaming when we do it to ourselves. So just to back up a little bit, you know, there are various forms of coercion and control that have been employed um, to curtail female sexuality for the last 10 to 12,000 years. And I get into, you know, what set that in motion in my book on true. It'll surprise people. It's plow agriculture. Um, but to make a long story short, you know, I love that. that you just slide that in there. It's plowed <laughs> agriculture. And I'm only laughing because I've heard you speak about this in your podcast. And it's so fascinating. So, he, so people need to go and listen to the podcast. Yes, and listen to our podcast, True Sex and Love and Buy on True. Plow agriculture. Who knew? In, in great detail. That damned plow. So um, what happened was, you know, we needed to coerce and control women, right? So that they would be monogamous. Uh, so that men would know that their property was basically going to the right person once we had property for people to inherit. Fast forward, um, you know, you can coerce a woman in many ways. You can do it with a gun. And many women in our country die from gun violence because they've been sexually autonomous. They've exercised sexual and personal autonomy by leaving their husband uh, or leaving an abusive relationship or they simply wanted sexual variety and they went off and had uh, an undisclosed um, extra dyadic involvement. I don't like to call it cheating. And many women in the United States die for that. Um, literally they die. But there are more subtle ways to coerce and control women. And one of the ways is ideology. And, and one of the ways is science. And science has been misused to control female autonomy in many instances, including the sexual science. So uh, it's coercive to perpetuate in science the idea that women are naturally more monogamous than men. That's a form of coercion. Another form of coercion is to tell a woman that she's a slut. And if you tell her that enough, and if you tell women enough uh, that non-monogamy is a slutty behavior, they will internalize that. Then you don't have to coerce and control them anymore. They're doing it to themselves. And that's a very efficacious form of social control. So that's very, very real. Now, let me just tell you about a couple data points about this. In the 70s at Florida State University, um, there was a famous study that was done that has been misused uh, to assert that women are less sexual than men. Here's what happened. Some undergraduate 
psychology students went out to a public area. There were women who the person who did the studies considered attractive, and there were men who the person running the study considered attractive. They So they had the women uh, psychology students ask men they didn't know, other students walking through these public areas in the university, hey, hi, would you like to go on a date with me? And the men said, sure. And then they said, would you like to have sex with me? The women said, and the men said, sure. Okay, so, uh, wow, the the um, person who was running the study said, there's your proof that men are more sexual than women. Let's see what happens with the women. So the attractive men go out and they're asking uh, women they've never met uh, in the university setting, in this public area at the university, uh, would you like to go on a date with me? And the women, pretty much without exception, say, excuse me, do I even know you? And then the guy says, would you like to have sex with me? And the women basically say, no way in hell, right? And they hightail it away from this guy. This is presented as evidence that women like sex less than men do because they have turned down these offers of casual sex. And this is called completely uncontrolled. Exactly. So you're so right. So this is called confirmation bias when scientists decide that men and women are a certain way and then they they see social behavior and they decide that it proves what they already thought that's called confirmation bias and the sexual uh literature the sexual science and social science lit is littered with confirmation bias okay so listen to this uh a really cool female sex researcher named terry Connolly says hold up a second because i see i teach undergraduates and i hear about female undergraduates enjoying casual sex, saying yes to it and enjoying it. And like a good scientist, she said, hold on, we need to reach, we need to look at this study. So uh, she um, redoes the study and she basically creates an environment in which she tells women, look, would you have sex with this guy that you've never seen before. Here he is, this guy who the woman rate is hot. If you knew that you were guaranteed to have an orgasm, and guess what the women said? <laughs> Hell yes. <laughs> Hell to the yes. Okay, then a German study looked at uh, the role that danger and anxiety and stigma played. And they basically told the women, nobody would find out if you did this. You know, uh, your mom wouldn't know, your neighbors wouldn't know, nobody would call you a slut. What do you say? And equal numbers of women and men said, oh yes, I wanna have casual sex with this person. Okay, there are still people citing that original study that has been corrected twice as proof that because men say yes to casual sex, um, men like sex more. Men don't say yes to casual sex more often than women do in more updated uh, and rigorous and, uh, well, better designed studies. Uh, women are just as likely to say yes to casual sex because women, the women in the first study were responding to the fact that women are much more likely to be slut-shamed, but they're also much more likely to get murdered, right? I was just going to bring up the personal safety side of things because you can't, you, yeah, it, you cannot overlook the fact that we are, generally speaking, more vulnerable when it comes to we our We are more vulnerable. We are more vulnerable. So, of course, we're going to seem uh, 
less sexual when the metric is saying yes to sex with a stranger. Um, mm. Now, here's another um, interesting thing about these studies about casual sex, that they completely eschewed the idea that casual sex uh, was more dangerous for women is really important. Um, but that Terry Conley showed that, you know, pleasure is a huge payoff. And if we control for safety and stigma, women are as sexual as men. If you're using as your metric of being sexual, that you're likely to say yes to casual sex. So there, you know, untrue is full of newer studies like this that just upend these very dated assertions that women like sex less, that women are less sexual. There's a whole new body of science out there to set women free and help them feel less ashamed. And But you're right that stigma is, is so very powerful and so is the issue of safety. Absolutely. And I've heard you describe your book Untrue as a love letter to women. And it really is. <laughs> and just the title alone, you know, Untrue, it suggests that we do have some unlearning to do and maybe some paradigm shifting as well. So I would yeah. definitely encourage our listeners to grab a copy of Untrue and really read it, read it with an open mind and share it as well. Have the conversations with your girlfriends because when we bring light to this, you know, these evidence-based findings, it really does, I don't know, it just makes it so much more accessible. So I'm so grateful your time today I could literally speak to you all day but I know that um you know you've got, you've got other go. things to you've got to go and fall we down have children right we do absolutely and before I let you go could I just finish with a quick series of rapid fire questions there's nothing Please. nothing scary all nice and easy but it's just a nice go way ahead. to end could and I let say one thing before we do of that course. Kylie could I just add one more information point I talked about Please. how if we look at ca a casual sex as a metric of whether men are more sexual than women we see that men are not more sexual than women the other metric that a lot of people use is masturbation and we already talked about that about why women masturbate less we have the same equipment and the same desires and the same number of erections that's that's just stigma the third thing i wanted to say is another metric that people use to decide that men are more sexual than women is about what some people call infidelity um, I don't like that term, but, you know, extra pair sex, undisclosed extra pair sex. And what we know from looking at things like the general social survey and other well-designed representative uh, studies is that men and women, quote, cheat, unquote, at equal rates. So when you look at many different metrics of whether men are naturally more sexual than women, uh, the answer is nope, 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 no, 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 no. So I just wanted to get so that in there before we move. Thank you. Let's move on to your fun, quick questions. Thank you sure. so much for adding that. Very, very important. Sure. Okay. Number one, what would be your standard go-to cafe order? If you're out and about and you're grabbing a coffee or something to eat, what would you grab? You know, I'm very simple this way. I am all about really strong breakfast tea all the way. And you know what I love? PG tips, the stronger, the better. PG tips <laughs> is that English tea that is like so strong, you could just die. That's how I like it. I like it so strong, you could die from it. 
I'm not a coffee person. <laughs> the strongest tea possible. Got it. And would you say that you are a sweet or savory kind of person? Sweet. I haven't had sugar. I, I made myself get off refined sugar a while ago, but my God, there are some brownies downstairs right now. And, you know, I could eat the whole They're calling entire, your name. They're calling my name. And I could eat the whole pan. Good thing I have <laughs> a tiny bit of self-control. <laughs> Do you, sweet. Do you have a favorite artist or song that you're enjoying right now, particularly in isolation? Is there a playlist that you're hitting hard? Hmm. Oh, that's such a good question. There's this jazz station that I love that people there might be able to hear. It's WWOZ and it's a New Orleans jazz station. And it's my pleasure every weekend. During the week, I have to listen to clavichord, Baroque, classical music while I work. But on the weekends, I turn on WWOZ, which is a New Orleans jazz station, and I just love it. So good to have those little mm -hmm. go-to pleasures. Now, yeah. what would you say is your worst habit? Do you have like a bad habit? I have a terrible temper. I lose my temper. I've been working on it. I read a book called Buddhism for Mothers when about 10 years ago, and it changed my life. It's by an, a New Zealand author. So um, my worst habit is that I have a short temper. And um, my best habit is that I've been trying to I've been trying to smooth that out with Buddhism for about 10 years now, and it's working. Well, you just answered <laughs> my next question, which was, what's your best habit? Smoothing yeah. Out temper. And yes, then my next, yeah. yeah. I was going to say, my next question is a must-read book, but I'm going to go ahead and say Buddhism for Mothers. <laughs> Buddhism for Mothers is a great book. Um, I really, I can't remember the name of the author. It was a while ago. That so I read we can it. find also, it and pop it yeah. in the notes. Also for moms, there is a great book um, called Strange Situation that just came out um, by Bethany Saltman. And it's about the attachment literature and how oh. attachment has been sort of weaponized to make women feel really guilty. So Strange Situation is great. And of course, my book Untrue. And I just listened last week to your podcast with, um, the, with Bethany talking about strange situations. So definitely... That's another yes. episode for um, our listeners to jump over and listen that to on your great podcast. One. Yeah. So yeah, fascinating. Thanks. Yeah. And I know people think... will come listen to True Sex and Wild Love. I really love podcasting. It's so much more fun than writing books. <laughs> oh, it's so fun. They definitely will. I'll make sure that we have your podcast link in the show notes as well. But just again, just so that people are really clear on the name of your podcast, it is True Sex True. and Wild Love. True Sex and Wild Love, and my co-host is Whitney Miller. Brilliant. It's such a great resource. Um, now, you. what was the last TV show or movie that you watched? Fleabag. I was Ooh, so I late to – oh, my God. It's fantastic. Oh, I, I live highly on recommend <laughs> it. I won't – you know, I do too. And people kept telling me for months and months, you've got to watch Fleabag. And I finally did. And I'm binging it now and I'm finding it brilliant. And then I want to just talk about one other show that I was very slow to. And I've been binging in quarantine, uh, which is Broad City. Well, then They're I must be super slow because I've not heard of <laughs> either of these. Well, that, no, it's not. That sounds about true do. for me. <laughs> 
Yeah. And you know, they're both shows about female sexuality. They're very unvarnished. They're okay. female sexuality, warts and all, um, bad behavior, um, you know, embarrassing moments, all of it. Female sexuality in all its glory and, you know, problems and, you know, all of it. So I, I love Broad City and Fleabag. Brilliant. Thank you for sharing. Now, what is it that keeps you aligned? Meditation. And do you have I'm, a favorite quote? Um, yes. I love a quote from Pema Chodron, but, you know, she's quoting really more classic Buddhist texts and Buddhist masters. She says, the present moment is all we have, and it is the perfect teacher. Powerful. Mm-hmm. And she also says the point of life is not to fix yourself. Oh, my gosh. That is so poignant. That has just landed with me because I was having this chat with one of my friends yesterday about um, she was feeling overwhelmed about the amount of work she perceives she has to do on herself. And I was mm. saying to her, it is never ending. You're never going to get to a point where you're like, I'm done. I've done all of the work. So just surrender Listen. to the fact that it's just, evolving and there'll always be something. It's right. You just, all you have is right now. And the point mm. is not to fix yourself. The point is to be aware of what you're feeling moment by moment and to be compassionate and kind to yourself so that you can be that way to other people just the words the point is to not like to not have to fix yourself that feels like a big warm hug it just feels so comforting so thank you for sharing and last rapid fire question is one that I ask all of my guests and it's been on my mind particularly in the last year and that is what do you do for fun and how often because as women, I think that fun gets taken off the priority list. You know, life Ooh. becomes about our children and our jobs and our chores. But fun oh, really beautiful. needs to come back onto the list. Fun and play are so important. And you're right mm. that it comes so naturally to people who believe uh, that they deserve pleasure. So, sorry, the question was, what do I do for fun? Mm. Is that the question? That's the question, yeah. Yeah. I love time with my girlfriends. It doesn't matter what we're doing. It doesn't matter if I'm with my friend Nicole in Los Angeles and we're just in a car driving her kids back and forth. We're laughing and talking and having fun. Or if it's my friend Christy, it doesn't matter if we're walking her dogs or we're sitting down and having tea. Just being with my girlfriends is so much fun. I can't that live feminine without energy. It. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Friendship. We know that romantic uh, relationships are nourishing, but I think we really underestimate the power of our friendships to lift us up and change our day and even kind of rearrange the molecules in our bodies. Um, Friendship is so important that way. So that's what I do for fun. I do whatever my girlfriend wants to do. (laughs) I love that. Well, Dr. Wednesday Martin, it has been 
such a pleasure to speak with you. And as I said at the beginning and in the intro as well, I have so looked forward to connecting with you and sharing your work with our community. So where can our listeners find you? Because I'm sure that a lot of them have fallen in love with you throughout this episode. Where should they connect with you? Well, first of all, thank you for your kindness and having me on. And thank you for helping me try to dispel some dumb untruths about female sexuality. I appreciate it so much. And I love what you're doing on Instagram and on your podcast. So thank you. And if people want to find me on Instagram, I am at Wednesday Martin PhD. And on Twitter, I'm at Wednesday Martin. Brilliant. And we'll make sure we have all of that in the show notes as well to make it nice and easy, including your podcast and your books. Thank you so much. I'll let you get back to your day, but it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Kylie. I really appreciate it. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 